Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You'll remain standing and take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to James chapter 4 as we continue to work our way through this very practical yet challenging book. As you're turning to James, I read this week about a pastor who said that as he was preaching through the epistle of James, a man in his church came to him and told him, he said, Pastor, I am so thankful for James and all that it's doing in my life and doing in the life of our church. And then he said, and what I am most thankful for is that James only has five chapters. And the pastor commented that this brother discovered something that many Christians uh, can testify to, and that is the fact that James turns our lives in this world upside down. But you see, it does this for the good of God's people and for God's glory. And I couldn't agree uh, with this pastor more. Different books of the Bible cause different effects in our lives and in the life of the church. So books like Ruth are going to comfort us, while books like James are going to step on our toes and challenge us. But we need both. So it's important for us to let the Word of God do the speaking and the leading. Because God is going to do what is best for us as His people, what is best for those around us who are without Christ, and ultimately what is best for his glory. And we can trust in this, that God's word is good. And so we can trust it, every bit of it, even when it's difficult. Amen? Amen. Let's read our text this morning, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, as we finish up chapter 4 on our way through the book. So only one more chapter to go. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning in James chapter 4, verse 13. And there we read, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it this morning. You may be seated. Well, after addressing the two types of wisdom, the world's wisdom and God's wisdom in chapter 3, 
Beginning in chapter 4, James has been showing us the havoc caused when the world's wisdom, rather than God's wisdom, dominates the life of believers. And he's shown us that this worldly wisdom manifests itself in at least three ways. In verses 1 to 10, James showed us that it manifests itself in the lust or the sinful passion and desire for pleasure and personal gratification. In verses 11 and 12, which we looked at last week, James showed how it manifests itself in speaking evil against and judging a brother or sister in Christ. And this morning, James picks up this same theme in our text where he shows us that worldly wisdom also manifests itself in an arrogant disregard of God in our planning. Now, it's easy for Christians to make plans and goals expecting God to fall in line with them. It is easy to plan our lives as if we controlled the future and had unlimited authority over all the factors affecting our life. I mean, it is quite simple to plan our lives as if God doesn't exist. And we could call it practical atheism. Intellectual atheism is when a person says they do not believe in God, that there is no God. And sometimes the intellectual atheist says they don't believe, yet the way they live, by the way they live, they show that they actually do believe in something. Practical atheism, on the other hand, is just the opposite. This is the person who professes faith in Christ, but they don't show that faith in the way they live. They live their lives without regard for God. They don't consider His will for their daily lives. They live, as it were, as atheists who say there is no God. You see, worldly living doesn't always show itself in hatred for God, Sometimes it appears in the form of just disregarding God as we plan life's daily activities. And in these verses we're looking at this morning, James denounces the sin of self-confident, boastful, arrogant planning without God. And James gives us five reasons why this is foolish. First of all, because of the uncertainty of life. Secondly, because of the shortness of life. And then because of our utter dependence on God, and because all such boasting is evil, and finally because disregarding God's will is sin. Well, James begins in verse 13 where we see the arrogance that he condemns. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so it's quite obvious that James is speaking to a specific portion of the church, namely businessmen, traveling merchants to be more specific. And he gets their attention with the terse phrase, come now, you who say. Now we don't get this in our English translations, but in the Greek, this phrase is very, very strong. In fact, it's like he's grabbing his readers by the lapels. And he's saying, now you listen to me. Because I have something to say which you need to hear. And that would certainly get your attention, wouldn't it? And that's the point. And this phrase also implies disapproval. And so once again, James is confronting his readers with the problem in their lives pertaining to worldly wisdom, to worldliness. 
And of course, it isn't merely James talking to his readers, it's the Lord speaking to us. And for although James is speaking to businessmen, his words are intended for all believers in general. But apparently, the Christian businessmen in the churches he was writing to were the worst offenders of not seeking God's will and making plans. And so James says, come now, you who say, and then he quotes their own words. So let's look at their own words. He says, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so they're talking about going from one place to the next, spending some time there in order to do business and to make some money. And we should notice what organized planners these businessmen are. I mean, they choose their time, today or tomorrow. They pick the place. We will go into such and such a town. They set the time of their stay. We're going to spend a year there. They plan their method. They're going to trade. You know, they state their purpose, which is to make a profit. And so they have set the agenda for the entire next year. And they've written out their business plan and the anticipated income. I mean, they have planned in specific detail. I mean, these guys are on top of it. Very organized. I mean, they've got it all planned out. All of it looks great. And so what's the problem? Well, first of all, we have to understand James is not confronting their occupation as businessmen, as traveling merchants. He's not confronting the fact that these men made plans and set goals. I mean, it's not wrong to make plans and to set goals. God himself plans. Psalm 33, 11, we read, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So God himself plans. The Bible commends planning in places like Proverbs 21, verse 5, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So the Proverbs, as well as other books of the Bible, tell us of the wisdom of good planning. Those who refuse to plan experience frustration and humiliation. In Luke 14, verses 28 to 32, Jesus speaks of the man who makes his plans before building a tower and the king who plans his strategy before entering into battle. So James is not confronting these men because they made plans and set goals. He's also not confronting their desire to make a profit. And it's not wrong to make money. And the Bible teaches that greed and making money an idol is certainly wrong, but that working honestly and making a profit is commendable. And according to Scripture, we're to to work hard to fulfill our obligations and, and to be able to serve others. The Apostle Paul encouraged the Ephesians to work hard, make an honest profit, so they would have something to share with others there in Ephesians 4.28. And so the problem is not with their occupation, their planning and goal setting, or with their desire to make a profit. You'll say, well, then what is the problem? Well, there's only one, but it's huge. It's a massive problem. And there's somewhat of a parallel in Jesus' Olivet Discord on the end of the age in which he refers to the days of Noah there in Matthew 24. And this is what we read in Matthew 24, 38 and 39. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, no one faults a person for eating, drinking, and marrying. 
The point is that in the life of Noah's contemporaries, God had absolutely no place. These people lived as if God did not exist. And that's what James is saying is true of the businessmen that he is confronting. The problem James is confronting is their disregard for God. God was not included in their plans. God was not even considered. And there's no mention of seeking the will of God. There's no apparent concern for honoring the Lord and what they were doing. They, they made their plans for the future without having any thought of God's will in mind. Spurgeon said, notice that these people, while they thought everything was at their disposal, used everything for worldly objects. What did they say? Did they determine with each other, we will today or tomorrow do such and such a thing for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom? Oh, no. There was not a word about God in it from beginning to end. The problem is that in their arrogant independence, these Christian businessmen were talking and acting and planning as if they were in charge of their lives. They imagined themselves to be the final authority over their own lives and businesses, and they were living like it. They were living like the man portrayed in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, verses 16 through 21. Let me read that to you. And he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Like the businessman in the parable, the businessmen James was addressing were confident that they were going to be able to carry out all their plans to completion. You see, they arrogantly presumed that their lives, their future, futures, their plans and successes rested in their own hands. I mean, this is the arrogant, independent, self-sufficient attitude by which we plan our daily lives, activities, without any reference to God at all. And if we want his involvement, it's only to help us do what it is we want to do, not him telling us what we should do. And if we pray in reference to our plans, it's not to ask God to show us where and what we should do, but rather to ask his blessing on the plans we have already made completely apart from him. And oftentimes, plans that we make in contradiction to his word. I mean, isn't that true many times in our lives? And as Christians, we often make the mistake of equating our desires and aspirations with the will of God. And so we make our plans without seeking to determine if it really is God's will. One commentator wrote, so pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many, if not most, Christians 
attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family direction, or entertainments than actually seek God's will. St. Augustine used to say, love God and do as you please, because if you truly love God, you will want to do what pleases him. We, he said, have changed that to do as you please and say that you love God. Many professed Christians say, well, of course I believe in God. Absolutely. But in reality, they're practical atheists. That is, in the way they make their decisions and plan for the future and their daily activities, they live as if God doesn't exist. They live their lives without regard for God. They don't consider God's will for their daily lives. And at the heart of this kind of worldly, self-centered thinking, is again that idea that we are in control, that we are the masters of our own destiny. It's the attitude summed up in Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, which reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, the fact is that God has a prior claim on our lives. First of all, because he is our creator. And as our creator, his purposes demand precedence over our priorities. Secondly, as believers, this claim is reinforced by the knowledge that we no longer belong to ourselves. As Paul said, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. And so God's claim on us is both as creator and savior. Therefore, he is our sovereign Lord, and we must be submitted to him, and his will must be considered in every aspect of our lives. And for us to go through life, or to conduct any part of our lives without reference to God, smacks of arrogance. And arrogance is something that the Bible everywhere and not least in the epistle of James, condemns outright. And so the reason that James takes these men to task is because of their arrogant, self-sufficient, independent disregard for God in all their business matters. They made plans for the future without seeking the will of God. And James now is going to give us a number of reasons, five reasons to be exact, why this is so foolish. And first of all, it's foolish because of the uncertainty of life. In other words, we don't know what the future holds. Look at verse 14. I'm going to read verse 13 too. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Look now at verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So you say you're, you're going to do this, this, and this, but... But there's a problem with all of your well-made plans. You see, you're acting as if your choice is the only deciding factor. As if you have in yourselves all that is needed to make a success of things. You're making plans for a whole year, planning as if your future was guaranteed when the truth of the matter is, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
You know, they said we will. God said through James, you don't even know. They planned for a whole year. God said through James, they couldn't even see ahead into one day. See, James is merely reiterating what's already been written in places like Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Hey, no one, will, no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, to say nothing of, of a year in the future, I mean, even the world knows that it's a huge mistake to count your chickens before they're hatched. Right? Tomorrow is a mystery. I mean, let me ask you a question. Is there anyone here who can predict what the headlines of the newspaper will say tomorrow? I mean, maybe there will be a, a terrorist attack on our nation. Maybe there'll be a political assassination. Maybe there'll be a devastating earthquake and tsunami. Maybe China will invade Taiwan or Russia will continue its military aggression into other countries. I mean, no one can possibly know. I mean, as mortal human beings, we have no idea what the future will bring. I mean, we don't know what will happen today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, next week, much less what, what the next year or two will look like. We don't know whose names will be in, the, in tomorrow's obituary column but it might be one of ours. You see, one unexpected event could put an end to all our plans. Nobody knows. Only God knows. And that's why Spurgeon said, there are two great certainties about things that shall come to pass. One is that God knows, and the other is that we do not know. And James is not suggesting for one moment that they make no plans because, you know, something bad could happen. He's not saying don't make any plans because of a possible disaster. But rather, he's saying be realistic about the future and trust God to guide you. One man said there must be contingency in every plan, and the God of all contingencies must be at the center of all our plans and itineraries. And because the future is uncertain, it is even more important that we completely depend on God. I mean, the plans for our lives need to include frequent reminders about God's role in the future. I mean, we, we should often say to the Lord, Lord, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm glad I know that you hold the future. One man asked, how does one approach life in the light of not knowing the outcome? The incorrect, that is foolish, way is to assume that all will transpire as planned. The more sensible attitude, because it alone is safe, is to assume that whatever happens is always under the control of God. And it is. It absolutely is. And so James' point is this. Only God knows the future. Only God knows what is best for us in the long run. And so to live our lives without seeking his will and his guidance and direction is nothing but arrogant foolishness. And the second reason why leaving God out of our planning is foolish is because of the brevity or the shortness of life. Look back at verse 14. 
He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so James tells the businessmen and all of us as Christians that our lives are a mist that, that appear for just a little time and then they then vanish. And the Greek term translated mist, it can refer to smoke from a fire, uh, to, to vapor such as morning fog or steam rising from a kettle or for a pot. I mean, we've all been outside on very cold mornings like we've had recently, and when you exhale, you can see your breath, but it's only for a, a brief moment, and then it's gone. Or when we pour a, a nice cup of hot coffee in the morning, we've seen the steam go up, and it, immediately it disappears. And so James' metaphor is clear. Just as a mist or a vapor or steam or smoke is visible, but then quickly, immediately dissipates. So are the lives of humans. And James isn't the only biblical author to describe life in such terms. I mean, this is a theme that is often repeated in Scripture uh, to us, in Scripture. I mean, to us, life seems long, and we measure it in years, but in comparison to eternity, life is a mist. It's a vapor. Job grappled with the brevity of life. He said, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. In another place, he said, remember that my life is a breath. In another place, he said, our days on earth are a shadow. And then another place, my days are swifter than a runner. And then in Job 14, verses 1 and 2, he said, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. King David wrote in, in Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. In another place, King David also wrote in Psalm 102, For my days pass away like smoke. My, my days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And then in Psalm 103, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place knows it no more. In Psalm 90, Moses lamented the brevity of life. He, he compared life to the grass of the field that sprouts in the morning and by evening it's faded under the hot sun. And so even if you live to be a hundred, I mean, how quickly life flies by. As one man said, life is, is like the roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the quicker it goes. You may not care for the analogy, but... It's true, right? I remember growing up as a, as a boy and young person, you know, talking to older people, and I remember my dad saying it too. You know, they, they would say, well, the older you get, the faster time goes by. And I used to think, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. <laughs> but now I know. And that's why Moses prayed, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, all of these biblical authors are telling us that life is brief. It is so brief. I mean, I'm sure you, like, like myself, you can look back on your life and think, where has the time gone? It just seems like yesterday. 
you know, I graduated from school. It just seems like yesterday I was married. It seems like yesterday my children were infants. Life is brief. So the Bible doesn't liken our existence to the rock of Gibraltar or to, you know, immovable mountain ranges, but rather to a mist. A mist that appears for a brief moment and then vanishes. I mean, life is both uncertain and it is brief. I mean, we, we have no assurance of a long life. And even a relatively long life flies by before you know it. I mean, the mist of life dissolves and, and it happens, again, it happens so quickly. By comparison, you may be much older than the person you're seated next to. But you're still a vapor uh, that is here for a moment that vanishes and passes away. You see, the moment a man is born, he begins to die. And that death could come about at any time. I mean, every single one of us, regardless of age, is but one breath, one heartbeat, one broken blood vessel away from the end of our lives. I mean, illness accidental death, or the return of Christ could cut our lives short. Man is not here to stay, rather he is here to go. And some of you may have had a close brush with death due to an accident or illness, so you may know more than many here this morning of the brevity of life. I mean, others of you think that death is for everyone else, that you're going to live to be, you know, 112. So that somehow, you know, you're excluded from death's grip. But be certain that each of us has an appointment with death. It is appointed unto a man once to die. And then what? Judgment. You see, we need to face the reality that that some of us may encounter debilitating illnesses or or crippling tragedies or life-altering circumstances. We don't know what tomorrow will be. Your life and mine is like a mist that's here for just a moment and then is gone. And so what are you doing with the gospel truths that you've heard? You know, what are you doing with the light that God has given you through his word? What are you doing with the will of God? Or is that even in your thoughts? Do you even consider that? I mean, are you procrastinating in following Christ? And if you are, don't put off until tomorrow what you should do today because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed this evening. You know, are you telling yourself that you're going to get serious one day about, you know, really living for Christ and serving Him, but for now you have other things to do? You're just a little bit too busy at the moment? Are you busy making excuses for your disobedience or laziness or lack of discipline? Life is short, play hard is not the philosophy that you and I as believers need, nor should want. Life is short, live in God's will is more like it. And since life is so brief, we can't afford merely to spend our lives. And we certainly don't want to waste our lives. 
Rather, we're to invest our lives in those things that are eternal. For as one man said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I mean, it is foolish. It is absolutely foolishness to leave God out of our planning because of the uncertainty of life, the shortness of life, and thirdly, because of our utter dependence upon God. Instead of arrogantly asserting that we will, uh, you know, what we will do now and in a year in advance, we need to acknowledge our utter dependence upon God for life, health, and for the accomplishment of anything in this life. All our plans must be made in light of God's will. That's why James says in verse 15, notice, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, acknowledging and obeying God's will is the mark of a true believer. This this Greek verb translated to say tells us that submission to God's will must be habitual and continual, which means that in every aspect of our lives and in every decision we face, our response as believers is to be if the Lord wills. In other words, the will of the Lord is to be central to all of our plans. And acknowledging God's will in this way just affirms his sovereignty over all aspects of life. Because he is sovereign over all aspects of life. He's not just sovereign over the weather or certain parts of your life. God is sovereign over all aspects of life. We live only because God wills it to be so. Because he alone controls life and death. God controls everything we do and all the circumstances of life. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. And he is holding all things together by the word of his power. And it isn't simply life that is subject to his will, but all we do in life, everything we do, Everything we accomplish, everything we attain, every activity, and literally every breath is ultimately subject to God's will. I read that our heart beats 72 times a minute. And if that's true, every time it beats, it does so with the permission of its creator. See, it's not just whether you're alive tomorrow or next year or in 10 years, but all that you do tomorrow or next year in 10 years. So James says we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's interesting that the expression, if it is the Lord's will, appears nowhere in the Old Testament though it's used several times in the New Testament. For example, Paul said to the Ephesians, I will return to you if God wills. To the Corinthians, he said, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. But it's also significant that in other similar situations, Paul spoke confidently about his future plans without using the phrase. And the point is simply this. James is not instituting a law that requires a pious-sounding, God-willing, whenever we decide to go for a pizza or have a hamburger or go for lunch or, you know, if the Lord wills, I'll shoot par on the back nine. 
if the Lord wills, isn't just some cliche, insincere, cheesy, religious cliche that we tag on or superstitiously attach to our plans to appear humble and spiritual or to make sure that we're not thought of as being presumptuous. It's not just a formula. James is not telling us that before we do anything, we always need to say out loud, if the Lord wills. Though I would have to add, saying it often wouldn't hurt most of us. Because speaking this way regularly should remind us of who really is in control. And who we should be seeking to please. But you see, the danger in saying it often is that the phrase can become just an empty, pious platitude that we just say by road and don't even really think about what it means. And we have no intention of living it. You see, if the Lord wills, it's not just to be a statement on a believer's lips. It's not just to be something we say. It's to be the constant attitude of our heart. It concerns what we think. Our attitude, our mindset, more more than what we say every time we open our mouths. It reflects our attitude toward life. It, It means submitting ourselves humbly before the one true God who is entitled to be Lord of all things in our lives, not just a few things. So what James is calling for is a change in attitude. A change that recognizes that while I might make plans, it's the Lord alone who brings them about. You know, whether we tag our conversation or notes with Lord willing, the important thing is what is the attitude of your heart? What's in your heart? What does your life demonstrate? Because you can say Lord willing all day long, but if your life doesn't demonstrate it, then it's just another lie, isn't it? I mean, do we live with a conscious submission to the Lord's sovereign rule over every part of our lives? Yeah, we're to make plans. But we're to do so with a determined seeking of God's will, walking in obedience to his word. And don't think, again, don't think if you're making plans that are in disobedience to God's word, uh, that you should be asking God's blessing upon your plans. I mean, how contradictory is that? And so though the use of Lord willing might be helpful for us uh, on occasion, the right mindset, the right attitude, which is utter dependence upon God, is far more important than simply saying the words. You see, the world tells us to live like we're going to be here forever. The world tells us to make our plans, acquire our possessions, build our portfolios, live life to the fullest, you know, go for the gusto. Live life and play hard. But James says, no. No, submit to God. Don't live like you're going to be here forever. Instead, live and plan and work like your life is short and like you don't want to waste it on worldly things. Live like you want to spend your life humbly before the sovereignty of God and ultimately for the glory of God. You know, as the people of God, we ought to make our lives for the short time we're here count and count for His glory. 
So you and I, need, we need to be finished and done with arrogant, independent self-sufficiency in this life and live our lives radically dependent on the sovereignty of God. Let me ask you something. Have you been planning your own way with little thought of God's will? The alternative to submitting all things to God's will is an evil, boastful arrogance. And that is James' next point. The fourth reason why leaving God out of our planning is foolish is because all such boasting is arrogant and evil. And so James now traces the failure to, make, uh, to take God into account in making plans to its root, which is arrogant pride. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. As it is, or literally, but now. And the idea is, as the matter stands at this very moment. And so James is saying, as it stands, or as it is at the moment, you boast. You're not concerned about God's will. You boast. And the verb boast was used back in chapter 1, verse 9, of a proper boasting or rejoicing in response to God's perspective. But here, however, uh, their boasting is presumptuous bragging about their plans, touting their own accomplishments rather than humbly submitting their plans to God who alone can determine what tomorrow holds. And if their boastful attitudes were not bad enough, James says you boast in your arrogance. Whew. I mean, taken together, the two words picture someone bragging about their plans for the future, arrogantly confident that nothing would interfere with their time schedule. And the J.B. Phillips paraphrase really captures the meaning. This is what Phillips says. As it is, you get a certain pride in yourself in planning your future with such confidence. That sort of pride is all wrong. Instead of focusing on God's will and their plans, these businessmen were arrogantly boasting as though they could control their own destiny. And this is the, the pride of life. And this, this arrogant sense of self-sufficiency and self-importance is the pride of life that John said uh, in 1 John was characteristic of the world. In 1 John 2.16, John said, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires uh, and the desires of the eyes and, and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And human arrogance and boasting is worthless. And it's worthless because it gives man and not God the glory. And this is not only unjustified, it is also totally unacceptable to God. And James says all such boasting is evil. Why? Because it's an arrogant disregard for God. It is contrary to God's revealed truth and disobedient to his commands. It is a display of human pride by those who have thought only of themselves with no thought for God. It doesn't glorify God. The person takes center stage in place of God. It's all about them and what they have done and what they're going to do. It's the attitude of, look what I've done on my own. Sure, God gave me life, but it's my brains, my plans, my energy. I mean, this was amazing arrogance. This is amazing arrogance. And James says all such boasting is evil. It's evil. 
As one commentator noted, most of us would not be so crass as to outwardly boast. We're far too sophisticated and culturally cool to do that. But inwardly, God knows. And God has ways of dealing with us. God, God, he said, will not suffer his children to go on in such arrogance. And you know, a major way for a believer to fall into this is to allow the world's view, the, the world's thinking, to guide our decision-making and to accept the autonomous, independent ownership over our life that leaves God out of the picture and then, you know, brags about all that you've accomplished. This is evil, James says, because it comes entirely from the world's perspective. It's a blasphemous denial of God's authority and grace to think that we, instead of God, control events. The Apostle Paul teaches that uh, we can only boast in weakness. Why? Well, because in our weakness, the power of Christ becomes evident. A Christian may boast of himself, but only insofar as his life is lived in utter dependence on God and in submission to him. And James' fifth and final reason why why leaving God out of our planning is foolish is because it's sin. James closes this section with a sweeping statement, sweeping, massively sweeping statement that has application to the entire Christian life. Look at verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Many professed Christians act as though the will of God is something they can accept or reject. But in reality, the will of God is not an option. It's an obligation. You know, we cannot just take it or leave it. Because he's the creator. And we are the creatures. Therefore, we must obey him. Because he is the Savior and Lord, and we are his children and servants, we must obey him. Like Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And the immediate application of this is this. Knowing that we should consciously seek God's will in all of our planning in every area of our lives, but not doing so, and instead make our own plans independently you know, do our own thing, disregarding God's word and his will, living as though God isn't Lord over certain areas of our lives, calling our own shots, is not doing what God tells us to do. And James says, that is sin. It is sin. But there's a much broader application here. You see, this verse doesn't merely apply to seeking and submitting to God's will and planning every area of our lives. It also applies to every teaching of the Lord in Scripture. You see, we sin not only when we expressly disobey a command, but also when we fail to do what we know the Lord has commanded. You see, we normally think of sin in terms of sins of commission. 
That is, doing what God has said not to do. You know, for example, God says, do not lie, so you do not lie. God says, do not covet, so you do not covet. This is how we often think of sin, as not doing bad things. And it always concerns me when I'm talking to someone about their Christianity, and and it's all about what they don't do. They don't do bad things. That can be very disconcerting. But what James reminds us of here is that disregarding what God has said to do or not doing what God commands us to do, these are sins as well, sins of omission. And as the scriptures make abundantly clear, sins of omission are as real and as serious as sins of commission. And did you get that? We sin not only when we expressly disobey a command, but also when we fail to do what we know the Lord has commanded. And this same principle is underlined in the parable of the talents. And you know the story. There in Matthew 25, before leaving on a journey, a a man gave one of his servants five talents, another two, and another one. And when the master returned, the man who was given five talents was able to show an increase of five and was rewarded accordingly. The man with two talents had also made 100% profit and his master also rewarded him. But the man given only one talent, he confessed that he didn't use it at all. He just kept it buried for safety's sake. Well, that man was condemned, not for doing something wrong, but for failing to do what was right. It was a sin of omission. And the very next passage in Matthew 25 tells of the day of judgment, of dividing of all men as sheep and goats. To the goats, God says, depart from me, you who are cursed, into into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But why were they cast out? Had they committed murder, adultery, robbery, or some such sin? Well, no, not at all. They were condemned for failing to do good deeds. They gave the hungry no food. They gave the thirsty no drink. They gave the stranger no shelter. They gave the naked no clothing, etc., etc. They were condemned for sins of omission. In fact, we can go further than that. Everyone who ultimately misses heaven does so because of a sin of omission. Talking about his coming into the world to save sinners, Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever, what, does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So again, here is a sin of omission, the sin of not believing. And so you see, this whole matter of sins of omission is not something that's insignificant and and trivial or, or unimportant. You know, something that's out on the, the periphery of, of biblical teaching. No, for the unbeliever, it is literally a matter of life or death. For the Christian, it's something that needs constant monitoring because as one man said, it is probably true to say that we more often leave undone the things we ought to have done than do the things we ought not to have done. Throughout the Bible, that is condemned as sin. But we recognize that it's wrong to do that which is forbidden by God's word. 
But James wants us to realize that it's just as wrong, just as sinful to know what you should do and then do nothing. James is warning us. He's done a lot of that in this book, hasn't he? So he's warning us once again this morning. He's pointed us in the right direction. And as we've studied James, we should know what we're supposed to do. And if we refuse to pay attention, well then, that's just nothing but rebellion in our soul. I mean, it is sinful to sit in church every Sunday and marvel at the practical nature of the book of James, yet do nothing about changing the way you live. And so here's the question. You know, what is God speaking to you about today? You know, are you making your plans according to God's word and his will? I mean, all your plans. Plans for daily living. Plans for the immediate future. Plans out a year or two or three. Are you making your plans according to God's word and his will? Are you a person who goes to church and talks about being spiritual but is living as a practical atheist? Are you racing through life without any consideration given to what God wants you to do? Are you more concerned with fitting in with your friends than you are with walking with Christ? Are you so concerned about planning for the future that you're neglecting to serve God and love others right now? Have you put off getting serious about eternal issues until some future day? And what about sins of omission? You know, not doing what God commands. Are you continually, knowingly, not doing what God commands? What about prayer? Jesus said we should always pray, not that we should be praying all the time, but that we should continue to pray and not give up and lose heart. When it comes to the costly responsibility to keep on praying, are you guilty of the sin of omission? Samuel said, moreover, far be it from me that I should sin against God by ceasing to pray for you. What about serving? When we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives to each believer certain gifts from God to do the work of God. That's their purpose. They're not for our own pleasure or entertainment. They're to do the work of God. And different people are given different gifts. Not everyone re receives the same gift. Those gifted with various spiritual gifts are meant to work together as the parts of a body work together. And these gifts that God gives to his people are divinely placed for the good of the body of Christ. And we're to take care of and develop the gifts that God has given us. We're to fan into flame every spiritual gift God gives and put them to good use. And no matter what the gift, its purpose is to edify it and mature the church and to glorify God in serving others. 
Is there a sin of omission in this area? What about meditating on God's Word? Not just reading God's Word, meditating on God's Word. The psalmist says of the righteous man that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How much do you meditate on God's Word? I mean, really meditate on it. Failing to do so is a sin of omission. What about relationships in the home? It's like a right right preacher, now you're getting in the kitchen. What about relationships in the home? Colossians 3.18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Are you guilty of a sin of omission here? And then Paul comes to the men and says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Are you guilty of a sin of omission? And then Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Are you young people refusing to submit to your parents' leadership and guidance? And you're guilty of a sin of omission. What about your stewardship of money? Let me read you what one commentator wrote. Unconsecrated Christian wealth is one of the greatest hindrances, humanly speaking, to the bringing in of the kingdom of God. Many solidly evangelical Christians have never honestly faced up to the issue of tithing, for, for instance. Have you, he says? Have you come to a settled conviction about the meaning of Malachi 3, 8 to 10? And then he said, look it up. And then he said this. When did you last sit down and honestly examine your stewardship of money in the light of your total and perhaps steadily increasing income, the urgency of the hour, and above all, in the light of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through immeasurably who, though immeasurably rich, became unspeakably poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Is there a serious sin of omission in this area? He asks. And indeed there is, because only 3 to 5% of Americans who give to their local church tithe. What about practical help to those in need? You know, the Bible's teaching is crystal clear. Don't neglect to do good and share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, Hebrews 3.16. And so then, as we have opportunity, Paul said in Galatians 6, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, we should be known as believers, we should be known as those who are always the first to lend a helping hand to to comfort a, a sufferer. And remember the impact here, that to know what to do is good and to fail to do it is sin. So is there a serious sin of omission in this area? You say, well, I don't like this. Take it to the Lord. Don't shoot the messenger. And that's what often happens, isn't it? Our sinful attitudes and rebellion because we don't like what we're hearing, is taken out on the messenger. Don't take it out on me. Take it out with Jesus. 
you know, as you identify these and other areas in your life, you should confess them before the Lord because that's what we do with sin. We're to confess it before the Lord. And then ask him to help you live for his glory and to seek his will and to be attentive to the wisdom of his word. Not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of his word. And before you make your plans and make your choices on on the course of action, on your course of action or behavior, ask the simple question, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to do? And if we follow God's direction, I mean, we will know and experience the life that can only be found through him. I mean, it's a difficult life, but it is a glorious life. And the rewards, as one man said, are just out of this world. Right? If the Lord wills is more than a spiritual-sounding slogan. It's an attitude of heart. It's an attitude of heart that is to dominate our lives as Christians. But if you're not a believer, well, then what is God's will for you? I'm so glad you asked. God's will for you as an unbeliever is that you believe in his son whom he sent to be your savior and redeemer. Jesus said in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so if you're here this morning and you're you're not a believer in Christ, uh, we want God's will for you. We want you to come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You might know the joys of living for him and serving him. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing